Welcome to Planning Law with Chickens, the occasional podcast brought to you by Town Legal, the specialist planning law firm. My name is Mita Kaur, I'm a partner at Town Legal, uh, and the only point of me today on this podcast is to introduce the next of our planning case law summaries. Uh, the case today is going to be University Hospitals of Leicester, NHS Trust and Harbour District Council. And who better to give us a rundown of Mr Justice Holgate's judgment, but a couple of very excellent barristers that were involved in that case in the form of Zach Simons, everyone's favourite planner act, and alongside him, Isabella Buono, both of Landmark Chambers. Both Zach and Isabella were acting for Leicestershire County Council, an interested party in that case. And I'm going to hand over straight away to you, Zach, to kick us off. Thanks very much, Mita. I'll start maybe by setting the, the the wider issues that this claim gave rise to in some in some context, and then we'll go through it all in a little bit more detail. Um, so the starting point is that that the NHS is under extreme pressure, as all of us know. Uh, the planning system, of course, is also under lots of pressure, and it's one of the key functions of the planning system to manage what can sometimes be very substantial levels of growth uh, through planning for new developments. That growth and those new developments have got implications, of course, for local services, local infrastructure, all sorts of stuff, schools, GP surgeries, local services, facilities, and of course, also in that list is NHS services too. And of course, as we know, impacts on those services are sometimes paid for through the planning process itself, either through the SIL uh, um, regulations or through Section 106 uh, obligations. And indeed, for, for Section 106 obligations, the key control on the ability to use them to pay for things is in the cell regulations themselves. It's in Regulation 122. Planning obligation, we're told, can only be a, a reason for granting planning permission if the obligation meets three tests. If it's necessary to make the development acceptable in planning terms, if it's directly related to the development. And then thirdly, if it's fairly and reasonably related in scale and kind to the development. Now, there'll be some examples of cases, like if you're talking about a new school or a new doctor's surgery or something like that, where the requirements for new infrastructure are obviously uh, linked to new development and payments are made, and, and that's all very straightforward. But what, what gets more difficult is um, where you have public services where there's a general legal obligation and indeed central funding um, to provide so things like the police, for example, or another example, the NHS. New developments may sometimes bring with them new people who aren't already in an area, in the particular catchment areas of an NHS facility. And if that happens, in what circumstances and to what extent should it be for developers themselves rather than for taxpayers funded the NHS already? Um, who bear the financial burden associated with those impacts. And to narrow the issue just a little bit more, um, what's been argued by NHS trusts around the country for, for many years now is, is that there's something of a funding gap, um, which arises from the fact that trusts accept that as a matter of generality into the future, central funds can and should cover the impacts of population growth and new development. But there's a problem, so it's said, and that problem arises in year one and only in year one of the development when new people are living on a site. But there's not yet anyway any negotiated settlement between the trust on the one hand and what used to be called anyway the CCG, the Clinical Commissioning Group on the other, to pay to treat these people. Thanks, Zach. As you say, this is an issue that's been cropping up for a number of years, but it's one that didn't actually make its way before a High Court judge until December of last year. And that's in the Leicestershire case that we're talking about today. 
At the heart of the case was a planning permission which had been granted to our clients, Leicestershire County Council, for a major mixed-use development in Letterworth, which is in southern Leicestershire. And that was for 2,750 homes, for a range of um, employment and industrial uses, over 23 hectares of land, and a range of other things too, like two new primary schools and a neighbourhood centre, which would house, amongst other things, a new doctor's surgery. The scheme was and is a really important one, and it had been on the horizon for quite some time. The site was first promoted through the local plan process for a development of this nature and scale as far back as 2015. And when the current local plan was adopted in 2019, this was the single largest allocation contained within it, responsible for delivering a third of all the housing allocations in the district. Once the plan was adopted, the County Council submitted a planning application to bring the allocation forward. And not long after that, the NHS Trust said that it'd be seeking a contribution at that time for nearly £1.4 million, although that later came down to about 900000 to bridge an alleged funding gap of the kind that you just described. What followed was many, many months and many, many pages worth of correspondence between the LPA and the Trust, with in essence the Trust asserting that there was a, a gap in that first year of occupation that you mentioned, and the LPA asking why that gap couldn't be um, accommodated through um, negotiations for central funding. In the end, the LPA decided that the SIL tests were not met, and so planning permission was granted without the contribution sought. The Trust then brought a claim for judicial review to challenge the grant of permission with the District Council, the LPA, as the defendant, and the County Council, the landowner and developer, as the interested party. That then brings us on to what the arguments were at the hearing in December. Well, the, the, we, we obviously don't have time for all of the arguments in this short this short uh, podcast, but, but the key submission from the um, NHS Trust was that the council had erred in law by, by not requiring the developer um, to pay a contribution under Section uh, 106 of the uh, Town and Country Planning Act of, of around £915,000 in the end was the sum that was claimed, um, which was said to be um, an, the amount of money that was required towards the delivery of healthcare by the trust to mitigate the harmful effects of additional demands on its services from new people moving in. Um, this is the funding gap. The, the funding gap was quantified at £914,000. It was said, and this is really the nub of it, that this funding gap, quote unquote, arose as a necessary consequence of the NHS Trust's funding arrangements with the CCG, which it had been said could not have regard to the consequences of future planned growth, which would come about through, for example, a whopping great new um, housing scheme to the east of Lutterworth. And it was also said that it was impermissible for the council as local planning authority that they could not it was said interrogate or question the basis of any of those funding arrangements they basically had to take it on on face value um the council's position consistently both throughout the processing of the planning application which you've just touched on and also in due course during the hearing itself was that in a nutshell the justification for this contribution didn't come from from one scheme for any particular scheme it was a national problem a systemic problem that arises from the way that the nhs is funded more generally um the council said it had been it was and it remained unclear why the negotiation of the of the funding between the trust and the ccg could not take into account an element of growth in population or in household numbers why why couldn't that happen um they said that they weren't convinced that the, the core contention was from the council as local planning authority was that the NHS Trust had failed to evidence the funding gap, or indeed that any gap 
arose as a necessary consequence of the development, uh, as opposed to the wider systemic issues in the way that central funds are collected and distributed. So that was what people were saying. What did the judge decide? So looking at that main issue in particular, the judge says that there's a short answer to the case, and it and it was quite a short one. Um, as you say, the argument had been whether or not it was relevant to look at the funding arrangements at all. And Mr Justice Holgate says that it must be relevant. In fact, they're integral to the trust's own claim for the contribution. If the funding arrangements didn't give rise to a funding gap, there couldn't be any harmful effect um, that a Section 106 contribution would need to mitigate. So he decided that the LPA was perfectly entitled to consider this issue and that it properly did so and reached an entirely reasonable conclusion, which was that the SIL tests were not met in this case. Um, his comments didn't stop there, though, because he did go on to um, think about what would have happened if the trust, if the LPA had, had looked at things differently. Mm. So he didn't just say that the decision reached reasonable. He said that if the LPA had taken a different approach, if it hadn't have interrogated the contribution request, if it hadn't looked at the funding gap, alleged gap issues, mm -hmm. um, then the LPA would have opened itself up to criticism, so much so that its acceptance of the re request could have been um, characterised as unreasonable behaviour in the context of a planning appeal, so as to open up the possibility of liability for costs. Mm. Okay. So that then gives rise to a question of what the wider implications are, if there are any, in your view, for, 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 for other cases. I mean, that this is an issue, as I said at the outset, that has been cropping up um, in planning applications and appeals all over the country for, for years. And the arguments that are put forward by, by NHS trusts are often actually very similar. Obviously, obviously it will vary from, from place to place. Numbers vary, but, but the, the structure of the logic is pretty much the same, which is to allege this funding gap exists. And normally, not, not always, but normally, um, developers, in order to try and make a problem go away, um, will say, fine, and we'll, we'll essentially <laughs> offer up the money. Local authority is normally amenable to that approach, and the money gets paid. Do you think that this is the end of that, um, the, of, the, of that pattern of behaviour? Does this spell an end to these contributions being allowed, uh, you know, across the UK? Or, or, or is the judgment um, not that wide in its in its consequences? I think the starting point has to be that it's narrower than that and in large parts turned on its facts. Mm. And Mr Justice Holgate was really clear in his um, statement that he wasn't deciding and wasn't being asked to decide the big question of principle, which is whether or not... Um, a contribution of this kind can ever be lawful yeah on the facts it was crucial that there just wasn't enough information provided to show why there was a gap and the size of any contribution you'd need to address that gap yeah but he expressly left open the possibility that it might be open to talk at a later stage in a later case about what you do when or if sufficient information is provided yeah that's interesting so that then would leave open the possibility in the future of these sorts of issues essentially being relitigated again at planning applications and appeals all over the all over the country i suppose one thing that jumped out at me that might have i don't know wider consequences or at least require further thought um is is that the uh, nhs trust in this case conceded and indeed the judge recorded that concession um 
that there was nothing on the face of it in the relevant rules that, that control the way uh, NHS trusts are funded and all the rest of it. There was nothing to preclude, it's double negative coming now, to preclude the negotiation um, of a contract which could have regard to population growth or additional activity uh, arising from the first year of occupancy. There's nothing to stop them doing it. And, and, and the, the NHS trust accepted that that was... Uh, that that was correct, which is not quite the same as what they've been saying to the local authority in the years, as you say, over which all this had been negotiated. Um, that then is going to, it's going to put, I suppose, the boot on the foot of NHS trusts in the future to demonstrate why, notwithstanding that that concession and that understanding of the rules that the judge confirmed as being correct, um, why notwithstanding all of that, then the, this this alleged year one funding gap act really is and remains a necessary consequence of the scheme. But as you say, I suppose in the end, Isabella, that they, they might be able to do it. it. It's a question of fact and will require evidence next time around. Mm. I think it's interesting how he deals with how the trust dealt with that boot being on their foot in yeah. this case. So whilst he was um, he gave the LPA a clean bill of health in terms of how they dealt with this issue, which was very carefully and um, with really um, careful consideration by officers and also by taking specialist legal advice. Yeah. But he's also at the same time critical of the way that the trust had approached the issue. At one point, he goes so far as to say what they've done is create no more than a smokescreen yeah. over this really difficult issue. Um, yeah. Something else he says a bit later on as well, which I thought was interesting, was that because this is so difficult, a highly technical area, the, the LPA were entitled to expect that the trust would provide them with some assistance on it. Yeah. Um, and that the way he approached that or made that comment um, reminded me a little bit of sort of a duty of candour kind of idea. Yeah. And the idea that public bodies should come to difficult issues with all the cards face up on the table. Absolutely. Um, and ultimately, by there being a lack of clarity in this case that yeah. was counterproductive to good public decision making. It's a really powerful point. I suppose one thing it does, you'd hope, give local authorities of almost more of a license or encouragement to do in the future is not to just take these requests, if you like, necessarily on face value, but to be skeptic skeptical, health with a healthy skepticism, you know, not cynical, but skeptical to interrogate for themselves whether or not these requests for contributions do in fact meet the relevant tests. Don't fall into just being, you know, blinded by the smoke, smoke screen. If you need to take specialist advice, and this is an area where there's an awful lot of specialist advice that, that ended up being being required. Um, so I suppose hopefully um, the judgment gives them that 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 encouragement, if you like, to look at things a little bit more critically, maybe. Um, definitely. And and so far as to say that you might even be acting unreasonably or unlawfully if you don't approach it with some healthy scepticism. I think the other um, kind of comfort maybe that that can be given to local authorities from the decision is that in the end, Mr Justice Holgate suggests that it might be that actually if there are problems in this area, they might not be capable of resolution through the courts or indeed even through the planning system. Um, and we know that sort of in very general terms, the idea of contributions being paid by developers is on the general government reform agenda, mm -hmm. but he suggests that it might actually be the funding of NHS trust that requires a closer look. Um, yeah. Because if there are systemic problems, it's not the case that necessarily or even is possible a resolution by individual developers and in individual cases. Really interesting. Well, I mean, a, a really interesting decision for lots of us in the who work in this area. I suspect it's the first, as you say, of these decisions um, that, that considers the relationship between the pl planning regime and NHS funding, but it might not be the last. 
Um, thanks very much. Great to talk to you. Me too. Thanks. Okay.